Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer for WebMD. On today's episode, we'll discuss migraines, but with a particular focus on how they impact women. We'll cover diagnosis and treatment, as well as the role that social determinants of health play when it comes to migraine. Even if you know a fair amount about migraines, I'm going to share some new perspectives, including the relationship between migraines and the health of your heart. A couple points before we begin. More than 1 billion people are living with migraine worldwide. It's three times more common in women than men. Migraine affects over 30% of women during her lifetime. As for heart disease, we're not exactly sure, but blood flow or inflammation, this impacts your risk and you may need to talk to your doctor about it. That might also impact medications or screening tests. There is a lot to talk about, so you're not just going to be hearing from me today. I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Cynthia Armand. She's the clinical director of the Montefiore Headache Center. She's also the fellowship director of Montefiore Headache Fellowship Program and the co-chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force of the American Headache Society. Dr. Armand, welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. White. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. wanted to start off with how did you get involved with the health of our heads, so to speak, headaches and migraines? It really started out with my journey in neurology. I loved that the brain was considered an enigma to the majority of the population. There was something about it, how we live, how our personalities are, and how we think and process information. And when I really started taking care of individuals during my neurology residency, I took a liking to my patients who lived with headache disorders. I was never bored. I was very interested in the pathophysiology and how they live their lives and really how the pain that they were experiencing on a day-to-day basis affected them. And I started to form relationships with them and that really helped me understand what they were going through. And I really felt like I could help and make a difference. I felt hopeful. I had this passion about me to empower them. And it really gave me inner satisfaction and fulfillment. And so I decided to go into headache medicine and I will continue to do this and continue to fight for my patients and and take care of them, give them the best care that they deserve. Well, that's good to know. And I'm glad (laughs) you're here so I can pick your brain. I've been waiting to use that. No pun intended. Love it. I love that. I love that. (laughs) But I want to start off with talking about issues of diversity, inclusion. We do know that there are these differences in the incidence of migraine. Typically, we talk about them in terms of sex or gender, but it's also impacted by race and ethnicity. Can you help explain to our audience what the data show? Yes, absolutely. So there are various population studies that have been done over time. The major ones, the American Migraine Study 1, American Migraine Study 2, and American Migraine Prevalence and Prevention Studies. And those really started to talk about migraine in terms of how they affected different types of people. 
And more importantly, the National Interview Health Studies Survey, they looked at underrepresented groups. So for example, in the African-American population, based off of data, we know that they're less likely to receive a migraine diagnosis as compared to white individuals. They're least likely to present for headache care nationwide in general, and they're least likely to present for migraine care. And the Hispanic population, 50% less likely to receive a migraine diagnosis. So when you see that, okay, in these demographics, these ethnicities, the migraine prevalence is more or less the same. Hold on a second. Why do we see these differences in presenting for care, receiving a diagnosis, and actually being successfully treated? So that billion number that I mentioned up front worldwide is probably an underestimate of the number of people that are impacted by migraine. I, I want to turn back to the issue of sex and gender. Do we have a sense pathophysiologically hormonally, why women may suffer migraine at a higher incidence than men? When I think about answering that question, I think about the American Migraine Prevalence and Prevention Study. And through that data, we know that prior to puberty, actually boys are more affected than girls. And as individuals get older, there is an increase in migraine prevalence in both men and women as they get older. But what happens in women, it increases at a rapid rate. So post-puberty, you see that there's a higher prevalence of migraine in women as opposed to men. And when you look at the studies, especially with the medications that are coming out, you'll see the demographics show there are more women in many of these studies than men. So based off of those points, we do know that yes, Hormones can impact migraine. There is something called menstrually related migraine, where we believe that a drop of estrogen levels can actually trigger a migraine attack. But also, who is not presenting? For example, in my office, I have more women sitting in a chair waiting to be seen than men. When the men come in, they bring their partners, and the partner is telling me the history. So, is there something more to just the epidemiology that we're seeing? We do know that there's a biological basis, but what else, what else are we not catching as part of that whole story to explain all the demographics that we are picking up in these studies? But Dr. Arman, I have to tell you as an internist, those men that came in with their spouse and partner for migraines, it's the same in terms of heart <laughs> disease and diabetes and everything else. If, if you want information, you ask the partner for a lot of men that, that come in. Let's take a step back and remind our audience what we're talking about, because a lot of people have headaches. It's one of the most common presentations to the doctor's office. So remind our listeners, what are we talking about when we say a headache is a migraine? It's essentially a neurologic disease. It's a neurologic disease in which the nerves are hyperactive and it's being presented as a headache but also other symptoms that are associated with it. So when we talk about migraine, we talk about, yes, pain in the head is a predominant feature. However, there are other features that can occur with it and also can predominate as well. So for example, someone with a migraine classically can be described as a throbbing pain of the head, can be on one side or the other, but there's also associated nausea or vomiting. 
There is something called photophobia, which is sensitivity to light. There's phonophobia, which is sensitivity to sound. And these individuals are classically debilitated. These symptoms occur and these individuals are less likely to be productive and able to function at normal capacity. And when we think about a migraine attack, it's much more than just that because it's literally an event, right? So we talk about it in different phases. So the first phase is the prodrome, which is basically the beginnings of what's happening, what's emerging and what's coming. So someone can feel like they're tired and fatigued. They start yawning. Um, and these are just a couple of symptoms that can happen. And it's mapped out in the brain, actually, through different studies. Then after the prodrome, many people, not all individuals with migraine, can experience something called an aura. And the aura is a transient neurologic symptom. Uh, and it's reversible. It's short-lived. And basically, classically, can be seeing something shimmering in the visual field. Starts on one side, moves across, and moves to the other, and then it's gone. Or it can be numbness on one side of the body, weakness on one side of the body difficulty talking. And then after that, if it does occur, then comes the pain phase, which is that classic throbbing, severe pain that can be debilitating. And then after that, it's the postural, which a lot of my patients like to describe as feeling the hangover. Your brain is recovering from this hyperexcitability that just occurred. And so it's, it's an event. That's what it is. It's not just a pain in the head. That's just that. You can work through it, go about your business. It's an event of many symptoms that occur with it that make it this neurologic disease that should be managed as such, as any other disease yeah, is managed. Heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure. That, that's a great distinction you've made. How do we diagnose it? Do I need to get a CT scan? Do I need an MRI? What's the process for diagnosis? So the process of migraine diagnosis is clinical. It's classically a clinical diagnosis. You come to your doctor's office, you really talk about your experience. You talk about any type of pain that you're having, any type of symptom. A lot of patients leave out some symptoms. So I, I spend a lot of my time asking. I, I usually ask for those because many times my patients always start with this. I'm not sure if this is related, but I have some tingling in my arm with the headache is, I don't know if it's related, but I just want to throw it out there. I love when they do that because it's probably related, right? This hyperactivity. So really it's a clinical diagnosis. We do use the International Classification of Headache Disorders, which shows a diagnostic criteria for many headache types, migraine being one of them. And you need to meet a certain criteria for that clinically in order to make a diagnosis. Now, imaging is not classically necessary. However, if there are certain red flags that occur, it doesn't meet the textbook definition, it's not really in the same demographic, it's behaving differently, and really anything in sorts of like red flags in terms of neurologic uh, symptoms that the patient may be experiencing, yes, we would need to have imaging and even certain labs because there could be certain triggers that can bring it on that, that may be missing from the body that need to be replenished. So really clinical diagnosis, and then we can do ancillary testing and things are not quite what we think they should be. Now, our understanding of the pathophysiology of migraine has changed over the years. Whereas before, in some ways, people had the idea, oh, it's, it's just a headache or, oh, it's, it's something that many people go through. 
But we know that there is an association with increased risk of heart disease, perhaps related to that inflammation or related to changes in blood flow. What's our latest understanding of the relationship between migraines and perhaps some specific type of migraines and heart disease? Because that's something many people don't know, and that might impact what they need for screening for heart disease. In terms of migraine and inflammation, inflammation can be high. Inflammation can affect different parts of the body, different blood vessels. So that's something that's very important to understand. What really comes up during talks and and when I'm seeing a patient is this association with migraine with aura and cardiovascular risk or stroke risk, right? So um, individuals who have migraine with aura, they're more likely to have an increased risk of stroke as compared to the general population. And so we definitely counsel patients on that point as well. But in terms of cardiovascular risk, yes, that's something that comes up very often. In the past, we have really thought that in terms of migraine, the the blood vessel caliber, the changing of that blood vessel caliber is what we thought may have contributed to the migraine attacks. Over the past many years, we've really taken to this concept of neuroinflammation, this cascade of events in which the nerves are highly sensitized, the nerves of the head and neck structures, and they really become active and affect different areas of the brainstem. And neurotransmitters, different hormones, different proteins are released. And so that inflammatory cascade is is something that's governing that. Now with that, they have been targets for different therapies. Uh, So that's definitely important to note. And we do pay attention to cardiovascular risk, especially with many of these therapies that we use. Because for example, triptans that are used, they can vasoconstrict blood vessels. They, they vasoconstrict the blood vessels. So many individuals who have migraine and have cardiovascular risk factors, uncontrolled hypertension, have had an MI, have had a stroke, they're unable to use these therapies. And we're going to get to those therapies. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I want to also ask about social determinants of health. What impacts migraines? What's the role of stress? Is that just something that we say that stress can cause headaches or is there some biologic basis to it? Yes. So within my patient subset, this comes up all the time. They have a headache. It's because of stress. They have a migraine attack. Stress happened. Yeah. I see a lot of patients that come in to the office from work and that that's something there triggered their headache or in in their mind. Right. Exactly. And Honestly, it it could be during a stress process, there are certain hormones and proteins and inflammatory mediators that are released, and that can be something that impacts the patients as well. But yes, stress can be something that impacts and triggers migraine. So when we think about social determinants of health, there is this concept of social causation. And and the way I want to describe this is, for example, When we talk about disparities and social determinants of health, one disparity is social economic status and insurance status. And we know that low social economic status is an independent risk factor for worse health outcomes. And we do know that migraine prevalence is inversely related with 
socioeconomic status in that individuals who have a lower income, less than $35,000 per year, have a higher prevalence of migraine. Social causation means there are factors that are associated with having a low income that could cause an increased rate of migraine. And one of them is stress. <laughs> so there can be stressors having a, an association with low income. And then there's another concept called social selection in that when individuals are always ill and sick from migraine disease, this disrupts their social and occupational function, and that can cause the low income. So the first one, social causation, stressors can be a prevalent and important factor in perpetuating this cycle. And so when I think about stress and migraine, I think about that. And I also think about what's being released in the body pathophysiologically that can contribute. So we have a lot of treatment options, certainly more so than we did even five years ago. And, and I do want to add, as someone who sees patients with headaches, we do know that people have tried multiple over-counter medications before they come into the doctor, most of them for headaches. So, you know, OTCs is not going to be necessarily the best strategy by the time they come see the doctor. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how social determinants of health might impact the therapies that you choose for patients. When we think about social determinants of health, we're talking about non-medical factors that influence health outcomes, right? And that's basically conditions and the way people live, born into their work, they navigate their age, all these systems that affect their daily lives. And so when I'm evaluating a patient and thinking about social determinants of health, I first think about taking a detailed social history. And through that, I'm able to find certain determinants of health. So one of them can be healthcare access, education, transportation, physical activity, job opportunities, being in a safe environment. And you're doing all this as a neurologist. Yes. Because why? Yes, because we need to take... <laughs> We need to take a social history. We need to understand where our patients are coming from. And I will point out that something like this develops over time as you develop rapport with, with the patient. They're not necessarily going to be forthcoming with their situation. You know, some people are listening. They're thinking, my doctor never asks me those things. Am I not getting good care? I, it's most likely strategic, right? It, you, you develop that over time and you see it when the patient gives that information. So how I tailor therapies, if I have someone who most likely cannot afford, for example, a device therapy of migraine, a lot of them are not accepted by insurance, are not covered by insurance. I'm not going to offer them a $500 device therapy as a holistic means of treating migraine. I might talk about biobehavioral therapies, mindfulness therapy for migraine, meditation, physical therapy, things that are validated as well and evidence-based, but are more feasible for someone who may not be able to afford the more expensive interventions. Those would be in addition to medication, correct? Not solely these non-therapeutic options. So I have patients who use them solely. It can be helpful solely, but really the evidence really shows great improvements, especially when they're combined with the conventional medical therapy. And what are some of these therapies that typically a neurologist such as yourself might talk to patients about? Because we do have more options nowadays. And how do patients know 
that they're getting a good outcome? Should they expect full resolution of their headache, less frequency, less severe? How do you measure success and how should a patient think about success when they're working with you? Because I can tell you do share decision-making in terms of what works for a patient. So the first thing before you talk about therapies, it's really important to discuss realistic expectations and what the goal is. For me, when I talk to my patients, the goal is improving the quality of life. For some people, they live with migraine daily and their improvement in quality of life is I'm able to do the laundry now. I'm able to go out and tolerate eating. I'm able to chaperone a trip with my child. Right. So that's very different from other individuals and any intervention that we utilize, whether it's acute therapy, preventive therapy, the goal is to reduce the migraine attack. So the way we treat migraine is first we talk about lifestyle interventions. These are things that the patient can do on their own. And there are acute therapies that are used to treat the migraine attack when it happens. And there are preventive therapies that are utilized on a daily basis or a monthly basis. And the goal of these therapies is to reduce migraine frequency and severity by at least 50% in order to see that benefit. And within that, we talk to the patient about their level of disability, what they can and what they can't do. And you use those qualitative measures for the patient, and that will be individualized. What's the role of a headache diary? So I love the headache diary. Number one, it's great for record keeping because the, the biggest complaint I get is, well, how am I supposed to do this, record keep this when I'm having a headache? And I tell them, I don't want you to whip it out during your migraine attack. Whip it out afterwards and kind of think about it closer to the event. So one is rep- record keeping. Number two, one of the most important ones, the patient's able to learn more about their body in the process. Once you learn more about your body in the process, you're empowered. You know what's going on within you. You're able to differentiate when something is with the pattern or when something is out of the ordinary and different and may need a higher level of medical attention. And it really engages the patient in care. They ask more questions, right? They recognize what a trigger can be. They recognize, start to recognize associations. And so they may be able to tweak how they treat themselves with medications and they really participate in their care very well. And the last point is it helps you figure out if the treatment is working. How am I supposed to know if it's working if I don't know what's going on with with the headache frequency and severity? What's actually happening? So it's a really nice record keeping for the patient. Well, that goes to empowering patients with information so they can help impact their healthcare journey. How important is this patient education? Because we don't always talk about that. This kind of is an evolution in terms of how we work with patients. I really think patient education is a cornerstone of uh, health. It's a cornerstone of working toward better outcomes. You want to be able to have the patient understand the disease process in terms of helping them realize what's happening, what's normal, not normal. What's the landscape out there with what we can do? I think it's, it's really empowering because think about the last time you were sick, right? And you might have Googled or something because we, we do that as doctors. So I tell my patients not to do that. But we do that, of course, and many things pop up. The first thing is, oh, my gosh, what is happening? What is this? What's that? And really the education 
is key because it helps the patient be level headed in terms of what is happening with them, what information is coming at them, and really helps empower them. And the education should come over and over again and in different formats, pamphlets, verbal, video. And, and I think it really helps them immerse into the care process. Dr. Cynthia Armand, thanks for taking time today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Dr. White. It was such a delight. My conversation with Dr. Armand was an exploration into the social determinants of health and how this can impact our experience with migraine. We also spoke about the connection between cardiovascular health, strokes, and migraine, as well as lifestyle practices that those impacted by migraine can incorporate into their daily lives to perhaps alleviate symptoms and improve their quality of care. My next guest will join me for a conversation about the impact migraine has on women especially during the reproductive years. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Adi Peretz, a board-certified neurologist and a clinical assistant professor of neurology and neurological sciences at Stanford University. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful to get to talk with you about women and migraine. This is a great topic and happy to follow Dr. Armand's discussion. Well, you know, I started off with asking her how she got involved in migraine treatment. I'm always fascinated by how people chose a particular area to focus on. So, Dr. Peretz, what made you decide, huh, I'm interested in headaches, particularly in women? You know, in my journey to become a doctor, I was very interested in women's health. Ended up finding neurology to be the area that I was most passionate about and was able to circle back to this interest in women's health through headache. As you probably well know, migraine is a disorder that predominantly impacts women. So my patient population is predominantly women, a lot of them in childbearing years and time in their lives when they can't afford to be missing work or missing childcare because of headaches. And I get to help in those very important moments. So it's really nice to be able to do that through headache. And I also get to do that in building a women's neurology program at Stanford, which is a really exciting opportunity that we're exploring here. We wouldn't have been talking about this 10 years ago, would we? This appreciation of how diagnoses may differ or treatment may differ based on sex and gender. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I think we are entering a time when we're really understanding that sex and gender have a very particular influence on the manifestation of diseases, whether neurologic or not. Um, and I have the pleasure of getting to focus on that in neurology and helping to have more personalized care in that. Well, let's jump into migraines. And what's the role of hormones? So we see these sex and gender differences, but can you help explain to our audience? how the incidence, the number of, of cases may differ across that reproductive cycle for women? Great question. So if we look broadly at epidemiology, we see that migraine, again, more common in women than men. It affects one in five women. And then when we look at how migraine occurs over the course of a woman's life, it starts rising. The incidence starts rising in menarche, kind of peaks around childbearing years and starts to decrease as you enter menopause. And so during those times of great hormonal fluctuations with menstruation every month, 
And with perimenopause, we notice an increase or a worsening of migraine. And so hormones are one of the factors that plays an important role. So when we can personalize medicine to those hormonal ethics, it can be really helpful. What might be the other factors that are relating to why we see a greater increase in women? We know it's not just hormones, because otherwise men then wouldn't you know, really have migraines much at all. But there are some other factors as well. That's a really great question. And I think what I can speak to is more the kind of migraine manifestations. I don't think we fully understand the breadth and depth of the influence of sex and gender on migraine. And I agree with you, it's not just hormone. But women do experience increased comorbid disorders with migraines, such as depression and anxiety. They have increased side effects from medications. They have an increased risk for quantification of migraine. And I don't think we fully understand why that is. Do we see differences in time of the month, given that menstruation is, is typically a monthly cycle? Are there differences when women may experience headaches? Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that because I think for many women, they experience worsening oftentimes around menstruation, but they don't necessarily know to articulate that or they just assume it's par for the course. And it, it is, but these migraine attacks are more intense more severe, longer lasting, more refractory to treatment. We'll see women who experience migraine just around their period, either before, during, or sort of shortly after, and then into their um, menstrual period. And also we'll see it sometimes at ovulation. And in fact, the International Classification of Headache Disorders, which is our book of headache diagnoses, includes specific diagnoses for menstrually associated migraine. Well, how might that impact how women then talk to their physician about it? Should they be more concerned if it occurs at those ends of the cycle that may not be typical? Do they need more aggressive treatment at certain times of the year? How does that all play into your management of women with migraine? I'm really glad you asked that. I think that information is key here. So when a patient comes to me and they have in their calendar tract when their menstrual periods occur in relation to their headaches, that can help me to kind of guide them in terms of treatment strategies. It's not a reason for concern. I'm not immensely worried that it's occurring around the period. I just know that it's probably more intense than headaches at other times of the month. And so what we might do is we might say, if you're having regular menstrual periods and you're having migraine attacks just around menstruation, there are some unique strategies that we can utilize that are going to better target those headaches and give a bigger punch uh, to get rid of those headaches faster. Like what would they be? Because everyone's wondering now, okay, well, what, Dr. Perez, what are they? What are they? So pulse prophylaxis is one of the strategies. Usually in the migraine world, we want to be really careful about how often you use rescue medications. We want to avoid developing a condition called medication overuse headache. But if you have headaches that are mostly concentrated around your menstrual period and it's pretty predictable, what a patient can do is use rescue medications as a preventive. You take a rescue medication twice a day, every day starting one or two days before you expect the headache and then into the next three to five consecutive days. And it's using our rescue medications in a way that we don't do outside of this particular condition. Dr. Armand told me she loved headache diaries. I knew she would say that, but I want to ask you your thoughts from the patient perspective about the need for headache diaries. Should we be asking patients to do that? 
Yeah, it's important. Data is helpful. And the best way to have data is for patients to keep track either in a diary or a calendar with some basic information, knowing how frequently the headaches are happening, what medications were taken for those headaches, when menstrual period is happening. That information is really helpful. There's a lot of cool apps out there. Some of them are tracking all kinds of different information because we know that the more triggers you experience, the more likely you are to have a migraine. So if you're having your period and it's bad weather outside and you're very stressed out, you might be more likely to have a headache than if it's bad weather outside and you didn't sleep well, but you're not on your menstrual period. Now, Dr. Pretz, I've got three true-false questions for you. You didn't know that we were going to have a quiz today, but I'd like to ask each of them, and then we can explore why they may be true or false, because I think our audience will find it very helpful as they manage migraine or help a loved one manage migraine. And the first is true or false, migraines are more incapacitating for women. It's true. There have been studies that have looked at this. So migraine attacks in women are more intense. Yes. That doesn't mean you can't have intense migraines as a man. It just means that for women, we have seen in studies that they are more intense, more disabling. When women have migraines compared to men, they last longer. Is that true? It can be. So yes, also true. There have been studies that have looked at this as well. Why do we think that's the case? These are all really fair questions. And to our original question of, you know, is this just a hormonally mediated situation? I don't know that estrogen is the only thing that's implicated in this situation. I think there's multiple factors at play that mean that women tend to experience more disabling, longer lasting migraine attacks. And my last true fault is in women, migraine are more refractory to treatment meaning they're harder to treat for our, our listeners that, that aren't familiar with some of the medical parlance we use at times. We'll go three for three, true again. This is another situation in which it's not that men don't experience refractory migraine attacks, but studies have shown that women tend to be more likely to experience migraine attacks that are refractory to treatment. And we see this oftentimes around these periods of bigger hormonal fluctuation, perimenopause, monthly menstrual periods. Well, th this is what I find is fascinating in terms of migraine treatment, because, you know, even as an internist, which I am, we always have to be careful about medications that we use for women who are pregnant or who want to become pregnant. So how difficult is it? Because here you've been educating us and Dr. Alman as well about the role of the reproductive cycle, the role of a woman's life in terms of impacting headaches. And we're saying they're more difficult to treat in women. They last longer, more incapacitating. But then we have to be more mindful of the drugs that women might be eligible for, given whether or not they want to have children, whether or not they're currently pregnant. How do you manage all that? And how do you work with the patient to figure out what's right for her? This is the exact space where I really want to be helping women. Let me say off the bat that there's some great news here. Women with migraine, especially those without aura, tend to experience an improvement in their migraine during pregnancy. Not in the first trimester. Unfortunately, that's a tough trimester. But in the second and third trimester, about 80% of women will experience an improvement. And this is such important information because the concept of going into a pregnancy and the thought that things could get worse is very daunting. 
And the idea that medications and treatments are more limited in pregnancy can be very scary for a lot of women. And so I want to provide some reassuring information here that many women will have an improvement. Doesn't mean we don't have a plan. We need to have a plan going into it. We need to discuss what treatment options our patients are comfortable with, what treatment options our colleagues in internal medicine and obstetrics are going to be comfortable with our patients accessing during pregnancy. But we also do know that the natural course of pregnancy, the steady rise in estrogen seems to be protective against migraine, which is great news. And then that brings us to what about those women who aren't yet pregnant but want to become pregnant? Their options may be different, correct? Absolutely. It is my preference to try to have these conversations with my patients before pregnancy because I want to think about a plan of action for when they're pregnant and as they're trying to conceive. And you bring up a good point that there are a lot of treatments that we have that are available in the migraine world, which is phenomenal, that are not ideal in pregnancy. There's really a lack of great data about the safety of most treatments in pregnancy, and that's outside of neurology as well. That's everything. Everywhere. It's a big problem, and it's something that we all need to work on as a medical community to better advocate for and treat our patients during pregnancy. What I like to do is sit down with my patients and go through what's working well for them pre-pregnancy and think about the data that we do have about those treatments and whether or not we need to change them. There are certain treatments that I do strongly recommend coming off of prior to pregnancy. And depending on what kind of medication it is, we may have to think about taking it off months in advance. It depends on the half-life of the medication. And some of our newer migraine medications have very long half-lives, like the CGRP monoclonal antibody antagonist. Those ones have very long half-lives of a month each. So we have to stop them ideally five or six months in advance of trying to conceive. So women should be having these discussions early on with either their primary care doctor or their neurologist. Some of these medications are typically only prescribed by neurologists in some areas of the country. What's your recommendation for listeners if they're suffering from migraines, if they have not yet seen a neurologist, should they have a check-in with one? I think it depends. There is a paucity of headache specialists and neurologists around the nation. So if your primary care physician is comfortable with helping to manage your migraine, it's fine to continue with them. There are a number of treatments out there that primary care physicians may be comfortable with, but it's also reasonable to go see a headache specialist to make sure that you are talking about the latest and greatest treatments and that it is as personalized as it can be. And primary care physicians do a lot. It's hard to be an expert in every little field. I would discuss it with your primary care physician and see what their comfort level is. How do you know you're getting the best care? Like, What's your criteria as a patient? I know we have criteria as doctors, but what should patients be thinking? Like I should be headache free. It shouldn't be as incapacitating. You know, my brain is not necessarily a visible disorder, but it is the most disabling disorder affecting young women. And so I don't want to underestimate the impacts that this has. It's just not as visible. And sometimes it gets brushed aside and ignored when it shouldn't be. I wish that we had a cure for migraine. We're not there yet. But we do have treatments. And so the goal is probably not complete elimination of headaches. But my goal for my patients is that they have a great quality of life, that migraine does not interfere with their quality of life, that they are able to do what they want to do, that we have the right and safe tools in place for them to accomplish their goals. And so if they find that their headaches are a burden in their lives, that they're experiencing frequent headaches that are not responsive to the medications that they're being offered or the treatments that they're being offered, 
time to rethink the strategy. You mentioned that we have a lot of options and that has occurred in the last few years and people may not be aware of that. Can you talk a little bit about the therapies that we have today that didn't even exist just a few years ago? This field is exploding and it's an exciting time to be able to offer patients cutting edge and new treatments. You know, when we think about treatments, there's different tiers of treatment. And it's helpful to think of it as a pyramid. The foundation of the pyramid is those lifestyle factors that Dr. Armand spoke to earlier. It's really important to have a regular lifestyle and to give the body stability. Layered on top of that, there can be some natural strategies, behavioral strategies, cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, acupuncture. Those have some evidence in helping with migraine prevention and don't cost you a lot of side effects. And then kind of what you're more referring to is some of the newer treatment options we have available. We have new devices that have been FDA cleared for migraine prevention and rescue, which don't have a lot of side effects. On the flip side, they aren't necessarily covered by insurance. So cost-wise, that can be an issue. And then you've got some new medications to the market with different mechanisms of action that are targeting migraine in a totally new way. The most exciting one for us headache specialists right now is CGRP or calcitonin gene-related peptide. And there are medications that work by blocking the molecule or the receptor to this CGRP molecule. And they work well. They have minimal side effects. I don't like them in pregnancy, but outside of pregnancy, I think they're a really great and interesting option to think about for my patients. How do you get patients to take their migraine seriously? Because you mentioned how it occurs throughout their life cycle. It may never go away. In their mind, they might be thinking that, or they have so many other things that they're trying to do. They're trying to perform their job well. They're trying to start a family or build a family. That's a very fair question. And I think the patients that I'm seeing in my clinic often are very disabled by migraine. We're a tertiary headache center. And so I'm seeing patients who are at this point just can't function in life as well because of the migraine burden. But I think any patient who is experiencing migraine, if it is getting in the way of what you want to be doing and what you want to be accomplishing in life, we have treatments that can address that, that can help. The other thing to remember is that Sometimes it's not best to kind of wait it out and see if it's going to get worse. Sometimes it's best to treat it early on so that you can get rid of it and not have to deal with the migraine that day. Is there anything that has surprised you in the years treating women with migraine? Is it the resilience of women? Is it the commitment to get headache-free? I think that those things are very fair. It is a beautiful thing to see a woman who is thinking about pregnancy and getting to kind of support them in that and the surprise when they realize there might be options for me. There might be ways that I can help deal with this. That is really a wonderful moment to be a part of. This is not on the patient side, but one of the things that has surprised me is the ways in which we haven't been gender and sex focused when we see our patients. So I've made it a point to ask all of my patients who are of childbearing age and potential, whether or not they have family expansion plans, whether or not they're on birth control, if they don't have plans and whether or not they're sexually active. And this is not commonplace practice. It's really important that as patients, you come forward with this information to your doctor. Tell your doctor, I'm thinking about a pregnancy in the next six months. That may completely change the plan that your doctor has kind of tried to craft for you. And that's important information that should be factored in when you're making a plan together. That is great advice. And you really have taught us there's a biological basis as to why women may be responding differently from migraine. 
as well as why they may get migraine at a higher rate. And that their treatment may differ over time, particularly when they wish to become pregnant. So it's an exciting time to be involved in migraine treatment because as you pointed out, we have a lot of new therapies. Well, I'd like to thank both of my guests for being with us today. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. This is Dr. John White for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. 